Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for January 2021, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Ken McNabb, author of And in the End, The Last Days of the Beatles. Ken McNabb's in-depth look at the Beatles' acrimonious final year is a detailed account of the breakup featuring the perspectives of all four band members and their roles. A lifelong Beatles fan and well-respected journalist with Scotland's Evening Times newspaper, McNabb reconstructs the seismic events of 1969 when the Beatles reached new highs of creativity and new lows of the internal strife that would destroy them between the pressure of being filmed during rehearsals and writing sessions for the documentary Get Back, their company Apple Corps facing bankruptcy, John John Lennon's drug use and musical disagreements, the group was arguing more than ever before, and their formerly close friendship began to disintegrate. In the midst of this rancor emerged the disharmony of Let It Be and the genius of Abbey Road, their incredible farewell love letter to the world. I began my interview with Ken McNabb by asking him why did he focus on the final days of the Beatles' career? I quite like the idea of looking at 1969, A, because it was such a landmark year for not just uh, not just a band like the Beatles, but for for cultural events as well, pop culture, political culture, right across the globe. But I like the idea of it, I mean, when I first pla- planned the book out, or when I first thought about it, was to look at it through the prism of 50 years. I mean, as a journalist, you're always looking for landmark anniversaries to hook ideas onto, or to attach ideas to. And, and it just seemed like it just seemed like an epochal year, really, you know. And it just seemed to be one of those periods uh, Martin, where there was so much going on in the background. Um, you know, you mentioned yourself about it being a great story. Well, I think that's the nub of it. That uh, I mean, as well as being a fan of the Beatles' music, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Beatles' story uh, about how these guys all, the, you know, came together to form almost like a magical constellation, and then they, they managed to produce the musical equivalent of the Big Bang. So I just thought that 1969 was a, a, a pivotal year in the band. It was, in fact, their last year as a functioning band, and so many things were taking place in the background that, you know, you, you as a writer, there was no shortage of material to look at. But as you say, you know, I, one of the things I had to ask myself right from the start was, does the world need another book about the Beatles? They're the most written about band in history. But when I when I sat down to look at the uh, project objectively, then I began to realise that there was so much there, and and much of it has been lost through time, and so you had to almost become a, a rock and roll de- combine the elements of a rock and roll detective, Martin, with that of an archaeologist mm. to try and dig beneath the sediment of history. And when you did, when you dived into the weeds, then you began to see an incredible tale unfolding, much of which has been lost in time. 
Well, the book starts off in an incredible way with this incredible event that happened on January 30th, 1969, the, the rooftop concert from their Apple Corps headquarters. What a way to begin this book. This this was such a, a magical event that came out of nowhere. The band's previous live concert was when? It was in San Francisco years before, right? Yeah, it was at Candlestick Park in August 1966 was the last official Beatles concert where they decided that because of all the screaming that they were not improving as musicians and they retired from live performing. Um, so this impromptu concert on the rooftop of the Apple Building in London was in fact their first live performance before before an audience, if you like, with the exception of the Hey Jude video, which was filmed before a studio audience. But uh, the build-up to this con- con- concert on the roof, uh, which has, of course, taken on mythical uh, importance over the years, but it really doesn't catch the band in a very good place, Martin, because During January 1969, they had regrouped together in Twickenham Studios to begin what was ostensibly uh, the film sessions for what became the album Let It Be, but what initially began uh, as a film project and which eventually, of course, morphed into the Let It Be film. But, you know, you don't have to be a member of Mensa to look at that film and, and see a band which really... At that point, Martin, this is a band on life support, but nobody wanted to be the one to pull the plug. Uh, and the reason for that is because, you know, they had been mushroom-growing inside a Beetle hothouse for the best part of 10 years. And, and it's inevitable that uh, eventually the strains will begin to tell, the pressures will begin to tell. And by 1969, they were professionally and personally exhausted. And uh, unfortunately... It, it, it manifests itself through the events of January 69, which, as you say, did culminate in the barnstorming rooftop performance. But overall, the band is not in a healthy state, and, and the sessions for Let It Be only reflect the lethargy that they were all feeling, with the exception of Paul McCartney. And Paul McCartney, there was so much friction here because he was... <laughs> Well, I don't know how you can say this, but saw himself as really the man trying to keep the Beatles together. He was the big cheerleader for this uh, film project and for this album project. And the rest of the Beatles, well, Ringo was always a friendly guy, right? The easygoing drummer who, you know, just wanted everybody to get along. But uh, John Lennon and George Harrison had, especially John Lennon, had his own personal demons going on, but and also had a new romantic relationship. Talk about the, the how the relationship between John and Paul was disintegrating uh, during this time period in 69, and how George Harrison tried to fit in to this whole puzzle as well in 69, if you could, Ken. Yeah, it is indeed a puzzle, Martin, you know, it's all these disjointed pieces, and that's one of the difficulties and the challenges I faced, which is to piece all that jigsaw together and then look at it through the prism of 50 years or so. Uh, and it's a year of cause and effect, and one of the one of the uh, examples of that is, as you mentioned, the deterioration in the relationship between John and Paul. Paul, as you say, was, right, was definitely the Beatles' cheerleader-in-chief, uh, John Lennon, I've always maintained, was the beating heart of the Beatles. But at this p- precise moment in history, John is, uh, as you say, he has he has some demons to deal with. It's no secret that 
John had uh, a heroin habit at that time, which I don't think helped his moods. Uh, you know, I always think of John as being a volcano trapped in ice mm. as a result of uh, his drug use at the time. And as you say, you know, he had divorced his first wife, Cynthia, and he was now with Yoko Ono. Um, and the problem for Paul Martin is that he's watching, you know, up until then, John has been his closest friend and his creative collaborator. And all of a sudden, Paul sees himself being nudged into the sidings and, and being supplanted in that role. And understandably, it's extremely difficult for him. Um, and Yoko's presence in the studio led to some extremely sharp exchanges. Now, I should I should point out that uh, in this book, I've been very careful not to apportion blame. It's one, it's one of the most repeated questions in music history. Did Yoko Ono break up the Beatles? And I, and I think it's a ludicrous assessment. Um, you know, uh, there was a myriad of reasons for the band splitting up. Um, and I think it, it serves no useful purpose to pin the blame on Yoko or as an individual. But there's no doubt that her presence exacerbated tensions within the band. Uh, Paul found himself walking in eggshells because he doesn't. he's in a difficult position because he knows that if he confronts John about Yoko being in the, in the studio and offering unwanted advice on the music, which was sacrosanct, then he knows that if he confronts John and John is then placed in a position where he has to choose between Paul and Yoko, the chances are that he will choose Yoko. Right. Now, in contrast to that, George Harrison, George Harrison had no such filter. You know, cynicism was hot-wired into George's DNA, and George would just call it as he sees it. So there was considerable friction. You know, history likes to depict the friction between John and Paul, but there was considerable friction between George and John over Yoko. And, of course, it culminated eventually in George walking out of the band um, 10 days or so after they began the sessions for, for Let It Be. And it led to some very uncomfortable moments for them all. And, of course, in Let It Be, there's a famous exchange between George and Paul. So, again, it's just another uh, illustration, Martin, of um, you know, the, the difficulties they found themselves in. And you must remember, they're all young men still in their, in their 20s. You know, they just seem to have been around at that point forever. But they're still very young. And it's inevitable, Martin, that people's relationships with each other change over time. I mean, you don't always hang out with the guys from high school when you're in your late 20s. Ken, I want to jump forward to a couple of events later in 1969 that you cover in your book. And one has a very, very local connection. You did, I assume, one of the final interviews with the legendary American DJ from the Detroit area, Russ Gibb. And Russ Gibb, back in 1969, was working at the radio station I listen to all the time, WKNR. And this is where, I mean, the rumor apparently had been around for a while, but it really exploded into the public consciousness that Paul McCartney had died in 1969, and many, many people believe that Paul really had passed away. It seems crazy now, but you know what? Before I called you, I listened to, you know, one of the so-called clues, that the part of Revolution 9, where if you played it backwards, you would hear, turn me on, dead man, turn me on, dead man. And damn it, I just did that, and 
it sounds like someone is saying, turn me on, Dead Man, when you play number nine, number nine, backwards from the White Album. <laughs> it seems ludicrous, I know, in retrospect, but people will believe a lot of crazy things. Talk about your your, your interviews with Russ Gibb. I, I love this man. He was so important to us here in Southeast Michigan. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's, what, it, it's again, it's a, it's, a, it's a moment of the times, Martin, you know, uh, the great Paul is dead conspiracy theory. And and I did speak to Russ about it, and he was a lovely, lovely man. Um, and, he, and he's obviously spoken about it over the years. I mean, I tried my best, Martin, you know, with this. With the story, the problem with bands like the Beatles is that, you know, stories become legends and legends become myths. Yeah. So it's important to speak to people, speak to people who were in their orbit, either professionally or personally. Uh, so I did get in contact with Russ to talk about his uh, connection to this particularly bizarre story uh, that Paul McCartney had, in fact, died in 1966 uh, in a car crash in London, and the Beatles had covered it up, but they had sprinkled clues throughout uh, various albums, um, you know, to let people know or, or to give the impression that, in fact, there was this great mystery hidden between the grooves of these great records. Um and, and and Russ was always Russ was able to add another layer of intrigue to the whole story uh, because he was the DJ uh, at the time when a student called in and and suggested that you know he might want to take a closer look at some of these so-called clues and 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 as he did so um, you know it, it was really hard to believe that McCartney had died and somehow been replaced with somebody who had such a gift. We've been able to produce songs like Hey Jude, Let It Be, um, Penny Lane, uh, with the same kind of finesse as the man he had supposedly replaced. But uh, Russ told me that he had, you know, he was very well connected. After having a look at the various so-called clues, he called, of all people in London, Eric Clapton. Hmm. And Eric, uh, of course, Eric, of course, said, well, it sounds absolutely crazy. But then he said, come to think of it. I haven't actually seen Paul for a good few months. So all of a sudden it began to take on a life of its own. Um, and Russ was only the, the man who happened to be uh, in the right place at the right time. And he realised that, you know, for you, for you guys in your business, uh, you know, ratings are king. And all of a sudden uh, the switchboard was lighting up with calls. Uh, and it took on a life of its own. But it's one of the great conspiracy theories of the time. And of course, it, it, it reached its zenith, in a sense, Martin, because of the cover of the Abbey Road album, which shows the four guys walking across the crossing in London, and and of course the great uh, the great um, theory, if you like, was that um, it was in fact a funeral tableau with John Lennon as a clergyman, uh, Ringo Starr dressed as an undertaker because he was all in black, <laughs> and. George Harrison wearing rock star denim as uh, a grave digger. But the key point, of course, is Paul McCartney, who is walking across the zebra crossing uh, without any footwear on, he's he's barefoot, which in European countries, some European countries, was supposed to be a sign of death. And, of course, the famously left-handed Mr McCartney is uh, carrying a cigarette in his right hand. So all these things were, of course, you've got the famous Volkswagen Beetle, uh, sitting beside it with the registration number 28IF, which was taken as a sign that it, it, it symbolised Paul McCartney 
28 if he had lived. The fact that he was 29 then doesn't really matter. Why <laughs> let the facts, Martin, get in the way of a good story? <laughs> That's exactly right. Exactly right. Well, and also, uh, let, let's jump over to Toronto. I have for, for many, many years, over 30 years, I, I would actually be in Toronto as we speak at the Toronto International Film Festival, but uh, have uh, stopped going to Toronto the last few years. But an incredible event involving John Lennon happened in 69, where he played live at a rock festival in September. The Live Peace in Toronto album was the result of this. I didn't know... Uh, as much as I know about the Beatles, I didn't know really the details of how this came together. And this is just nuts. The, the promoter cold called Apple Records and got through to John Lennon. And this all happened within about a day. Uh, this is an astounding story, Ken. I mean, it really is astounding, Martin. It's the only word for it. You know, I mean, when you look back in these days, you wonder how, how you know, they managed to, uh, how their nervous systems managed to stay intact. <laughs> uh, this came about because I think the name of the, I think the name of the promoter was John Brewer, and um, and he did, he, he was organising this rock and roll revival concert in Toronto, and and, and it was supposed to, of course, celebrate uh, a nostalgic revival in early rock and roll, and um, and he put a call into Apple in London. The reason was because. Tickets were floundering. The, the the event was in danger of becoming a, a, a huge flop, which would have left the promoters with an enormous bill. So as a last-ditch resort, they made a phone call to London, to Apple. But somebody suggested, why don't you try and get John Lennon to come out and maybe introduce one of the bands, um, you know, because of Lennon's love for early rock and roll. So he did put the call into Apple and it must have been like phoning the Vatican, Martin, and all of a sudden the Pope picks up the phone. Or do you phone the White House and the President picks up the phone? Uh, because literally John Lennon did pick up the phone, and once the guy had recovered his composure, he outlined what he had in mind. You know, this was taking place, incidentally, the next day, the next day. Um, and, you know, would Lennon be interested in coming along? And And John, of course, was making notes, and eventually said, well, you know, I'd like to come, but only if we could bring my band. And, uh, and of course, you know, the guy was completely floored by this because he thought he was, Lennon was offering to bring the Beatles, which would have been, of course, the, the showbiz coup of the decade <laughs> after yeah. them having not played together for so long. But, of course, he really meant a pickup band, and that pickup band included uh, Eric Clapton, Klaus Wurman, who was the guy who used to play with Manfred Mann and who designed the Revolver cover, and Alan White as a drummer, who, of course, famously became the drummer of Yes. So, yes, within within 24 hours, after a bit of stop-start, you know, because he, he nearly pulled out with nerves, but something like 36 hours later, John Lennon was standing on a stage in Toronto, uh, full of nerves, incidentally, in a white suit, and, uh, and and ran through some rock and roll oldies. Um, and, of course, the whole event culminated in Lennon singing Give Peace a Chance, which, of course, uh, was one of the great highlights of the concert. But it was a fraught time for John because, you know, he hadn't really played in that kind of arena for a long time, and he, and he was beset with nerves. But, of course, once he'd done it, he wanted to keep on doing it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Typical John. Yeah. Ken, I need to wrap up. Yeah, I could no talk to you for hours. Let, let, let's hit you with one final question here. Yeah. In this year of 1969, the, the last days of the Beatles in your book and in the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Beatles also, uh, yeah, recorded Abbey Road too. They're there the, <laughs> throughout all this and, and, and all of the drama, you know, continues through the, re- the recording of this album. Um, the, there is so much on this to talk about. And, you know, I want to give George Harrison his due because he finally gets his due on Abbey Road with two of the greatest songs on the album, Something and Here Comes the Sun. You know, come together, the, the, you know, with John Lennon's tune, I, I love as well. But let's focus on the two George Harrison songs. How did he finally get through, yeah, the, the John Lennon, Paul McCartney barricade and get two songs on this uh, incredible Beatles album? And uh, how did those two songs come about? And were the Beatles finally on board? They were so often so dismissive of George. It, it still really bothers me to this day, the way they treated him. Yeah, I do take your point, Martin. He was treated as an economy class Beatle simply because he was the youngest. Mm. Uh, but by 1969, George, George is the dark horse coming up on the inside rail. You know, he already has While My Guitar Gently Weeps Under His Belt from the White Album. He has important validation from friends like superstar friends like Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton um, and eventually I mean it wasn't unusual for them to have songs on the album but with Abbey Road which is the Beatles last love letter to the world in a sense in a musical sense you know he finally managed to have this career breakthrough with something and here comes the sun something was actually a leftover from the White Album sessions um, but you know the, it took a long while for him to convince them that this song was worthy of their attention. Uh, and it was difficult for them to break through that that uh, Lennon-McCartney barrier. But something is, a, 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 is an example of a song that, stand, that easily stands alongside the best of the Lennon-McCartney songs uh, throughout the Beatles' history, in a sense. And also, Here Comes the Sun. So I, I have a theory, Martin, and the theory is this, that... Um, had Lennon and McCartney been able to part their egos just slightly um, on Abbey Road, I think we could all live without Maxwell Silverhammer. Oh, yeah. Had they had they been able to part their egos just a bit, because by that time George Harrison some, had something like thirty-five songs in his bottom drawer, <laughs> and some of them are brilliant. And of course, some of them appeared on his very first solo album, All Things Must Pass. And had George been given the freedom or the room to include maybe two more of his songs on Abbey Road at that period, then I think that Abbey Road would have been out of sight as the greatest album of all time. And it's interesting to note, Martin, in this digital age, that the most popular Beatles song on Spotify is not, in fact, a Lennon-McCartney song. It is, in fact, Here Comes the Sun. And I like to think that whatever George is at the moment, he's having a wry smile about that. You've been listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for January 2021. Our interview was with Ken McNabb, author of And In the End, The Last Days of the Beatles. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.